How do you know when a great person has been born? It's actually hard to tell at the time because there's a sense in which great people aren't born, uh, babies are born. And when they are, you can't really see what impact that baby may or may not have on the world when they grow up. So, for example, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, in a recent survey, was voted the greatest American president of all time. And yet Abraham Lincoln was born uh, in very modest circumstances, into a one-room log cabin in Kentucky on a farm that his family would later be evicted from. Who could have foreseen that that little baby would have grown up uh, from those humble circumstances to grow up and do what he did? It's hard to tell when a great person has actually been born. Now all this has relevance for us at this time of year because this coming Friday we're going to be celebrating a very humble birth indeed. We're going to be celebrating the birth of a baby born to a teenage girl in an animal shelter in a village about the size of one garden out in the back blocks of ancient Palestine. That is a pretty unimpressive entry into the world. And yet despite all that obscurity... Uh, This morning's Bible passage wants us to know that for those with eyes to see it, the baby in the animal shelter was indeed the birth of greatness. It was in fact the birth of a person who God had been shaping the entire history of the world in preparation for. And And Matthew shows us this by starting his gospel with a most remarkable family tree. It's a family tree that he introduces by way of an intriguing opening sentence. Look at verse 1, chapter 1 with me. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, what's intriguing about that sentence is why does it specifically mention David and Abraham there? I mean, Matthew's going to go on and mention them again anyway, a bit later on in the genealogy proper. Why drag them up front here so that they get mentioned twice? And anyway, why those two particular blokes? Why not go for Judah? Why not go for Solomon? What's so special about these two guys? Well, it's because from the very start of his gospel, Matthew wants to focus our attention on how Jesus' birth comes as the fulfilment of God's plans to create a special people for himself. Because that's what makes Abraham and David stand out from the crowd in the Old Testament. These are two blokes to whom God made really important promises about creating a special people. To Abraham, God promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, which is a lot. And it was nice to have been promised that because at the time Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any children at all. But even better than the fact that there was going to be heaps of descendants, God also promised that out of these descendants would come an especially blessed people, a people who God would call his very own a people who God would bring blessing who God would use to bring blessings to the entire world but all that wasn't enough because a bit later on in the old testament God then promised 
David, when he was king over Abraham's descendants, he promised King David that one of David's descendants would be the ruler of this blessed people. And if that wasn't enough, as the Old Testament went on, it became clear that this promised ruling descendant of David would in fact be the ruler over all the world. And he would judge with justice and righteousness and in peace and that he eventually bring rest to this special people of God. And so a special people of God ruled over by a special ruler of God so as to bring blessings to all the world. These are pretty big promises to Abraham and David. Amazingly big promises, actually. Coming as they do in the Old Testament, in the midst of a world spiralling out of control because of human sin. Because that's what's happening in and around these promises in the Old Testament. That the promises themselves are wonderful, but they're happening against this backdrop of a messy, corrupt, violent world where God just breaks in and he makes promises to fix the world up. To create a blessed people, ruled over by a wonderful king. I think I've told the story once before, but I remember once going with my dad to see a surgeon because dad had been suffering for months and months with terrible pain running down his body from a problem in his neck. And I can remember the doctor sitting behind his desk for what seemed like ages, just looking at dad's x-rays, studying the scans, not saying a thing. And then after what seemed like ages, he turned to dad and said, would you like me to stop the pain? And my dad, who up until then didn't really show very much emotion or that often at all, he just started crying. To hear someone who could help promise that they were going to help. And he just wept. That is the sort of feeling that washes through the Old Testament. When God promised Abraham and David that he would create a special people. And he was going to bless them. And he was going to rule over them with his own mighty king. It's a commitment from someone who can help to help the world. And look, back here in Matthew, by especially reminding us of David and Abraham here in the very first sentence, do you see that Matthew is building anticipation for this genealogy that he's now about to get us into? I mean, could this genealogy be going to lead to the person who will in fact fulfil all these wonderful promises from God to these two blokes, Abraham and David? Well, we'll need to wait and see. Because what we quickly discover is that when you start to read the genealogy proper, it turns out to be a bit of an unusual one. And at least a couple of the things that make it unusual also build anticipation for where the genealogy might be heading. So, for example, one of the unusual things about the genealogy is that women get mentioned in it. So you look at verse 2, for example, where it kicks off fairly conventionally with Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham, that's a bloke, was the father of Isaac, that's another bloke. Isaac, the father of Jacob, another bloke. Jacob, the father of Judah, another guy, and his brothers, that's more blokes. 
verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, another bloke, and Zerah, another bloke, whose mother was Tamar. Where did she come from? Why suddenly drop her into the list? And then down in verse 5, there's another woman, Rahab, gets mentioned. And then a third woman, Ruth, also gets mentioned in the same verse. Now, you've got to know that in the male-dominated world that Matthew is writing in, this is very unconventional to mention women in a family tree. But it's also an unusual choice of women, if you think about it. No mention of the ones who you might expect. Abraham's wife, Sarah, for example, not a mention. Just Tamar, Rahab and Ruth. Which, if you know your Old Testament, you will recognise that they are all Gentile women. These are women who married into Abraham's descendants. In fact, a couple of them are quite dubious Gentile women. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho and Tamar was a Canaanite who pretended to be a prostitute so as to seduce her own father-in-law. That's tacky. But you see, Matthew is mentioning them in the genealogy to again remind us of God's promises to create a special people who will bring blessing to all the world. A people who will bring blessing to Jew and Gentile. A people who will bring blessing to men and women. A people who will bring blessing even to broken people. Even to unexpected people. And you look down the genealogy and that's exactly who gets included in it. And so by mentioning these unexpected type of people, Matthew is continuing to build anticipation to where this genealogy might be heading. Who might be coming who's going to fulfil the promises of God to bless even the most imperfect, unexpected sorts of people? But as well as mentioning women, there's another unusual thing in the genealogy, and that is that an event gets listed. See, look with me now at verse 11. Verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. Verse 12. After the exile to Babylon. And then we're back into names of people again. Again, this is unconventional. Family trees, we're used to them. They're about lineage and children and who married who. Here, Matthew inserts the name of an event, the exile. And he mentions it twice so that we don't miss it. And again, it's got to do with prompting us about God's promises to create a special people and place his special king over them. Because as many of you would know, the exile is a historical event where the Babylonian army crushed and conquered Israel. They ravaged the land, they carried thousands of Israelites as exiles into a foreign land. Terrible event. And God brought it on the descendants of Abraham as a punishment for their disobedience. That despite being Abraham's descendants and having David's descendant over them as their king, Israel willfully kept ignoring God, doing their own thing. And so eventually God sent them into exile as punishment. And in so doing, all of God's promises to Abraham and David were put on hold. 
Not abandoned, God doesn't break his word, but during the exile as punishment, it's as if God pressed the pause button down on all those promises that he'd made to David and Abraham. Israel weren't a blessed people, they were a cursed people. They didn't have one of David's descendants over them. They were being ruled over by a foreign nation. And so what happened in this period of history, as it drew to an end at the time of the exile, there was this growing expectation as to when God might finally release the pause button. Hey, when's God going to hit the play button again? When's he going to create a people that perhaps will always be blessed? When is, when is, when is this great descendant of David finally going to appear? And again, you see, by mentioning an event, the exile, and tapping into those sorts of uh, expectant questions, this unusual genealogy is generating all this anticipation about who might actually be at the end of it. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Friends, for those with ears to hear it, that is an exciting conclusion to this passage. Because remember, Christ it's not Jesus' name, it's a, it's a title. It's the title for the coming king of the world. It's the label, it's the status, it's the rank of the king of the world. And the genealogy has led us to that little baby born in an animal shelter. As humble an entry into the world as you can imagine and yet the birth of unimaginable greatness. Such greatness that the history of this planet has been deliberately organised by God so as to prepare for his arrival. That's what Matthew's getting at in verse 17 there about the 14 generations between Abraham and David and David in the exile and the exile and Jesus. Matthew's making the point that it's all been perfectly crafted by God. Everything has been systematically, symmetrically, all worked out in perfect preparation for the birth of this baby. Such is his greatness. I come from a science background and in science the common view is that history, life, uh, has no direction at all. Uh, life is just made up of lots and lots of little coincidences and random events and it just happens by chance without any rhyme or reason really. And so I've heard it argued that uh, the real reason for the Jewish Holocaust uh, was the fact that Adolf Hitler was rejected twice from the Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, what turned out is that after the second rejection, uh, when his mother died, he had no means of support, so Hitler ended up in the slums of Vienna, and that's where he developed his hatred for the Jewish people. And it's argued, hey, that, that's, that's history. It's just the accumulation of little, almost random events, like whether or not a professor in art likes a particular style of drawing or not. 
It's just the luck of the draw. It's the way things work out. There's no real big direction. Matthew wants us to know that's not right at all. History has a very clear direction indeed. And it has been shaped by God to bring about the arrival of Jesus Christ on that first Christmas day. That old chestnut, you know, history is his story. It's not just a cliche after all. It's actually true. Because with Jesus, all the promises of God, all the things that he promised to Abraham and David about a special people and ruling over them with this extraordinary, wonderful, special, they all come true in Jesus. Now, of course, we're only 17 verses in, and so Matthew's going to go on in the rest of his gospel and say a lot more about exactly how it is that Jesus does fulfil these promises. It turns out that it's primarily through his death and resurrection. We'll think more about that on Christmas Day and over the next few Sundays after that. But for the moment, can you at least just see the big idea that Matthew is wanting us to feel in these opening verses? It's not just a simple family tree with weird names. It's a history of the world according to God. And it's all about how history has been shaped by God for the coming of Jesus Christ. For he is at the very centre of all God's purposes and plans. And that's a really helpful lesson to be reminded of. Because it's reminding us that surely Jesus should be at the centre of our purposes and plans as well. If we at all think of life like God does. It's about now that many of us are getting, uh, you know, those Christmas letters from family and friends. You know those letters where people summarise what the year's been like for them, where they, where they went to for holidays and how little Johnny did in his footy team and how little Mary's violin playing is coming along really well. Got any, got any of those letters? Maybe written a few yourself? Christmas letters are really interesting because they give you an insight into what people think are the things that matter most in their life. I mean, you can't mention absolutely everything that happens. Uh, that's what Facebook's for. But a Christmas letter, <laughs> you've got to be a little bit more selective. And it's interesting to see what people select for their letters. It's an insight into what things matter most. You do understand that according to God, it's the stuff to do with Jesus that matters most. You do understand that, don't you? God shaped all of history in preparation for this one. He is that important. And we will just be living out of step with the life that God intends for us if we don't think and live along similar lines. And so that little Sunday school class where you taught children about Jesus throughout the year, In God's eyes, that's far more important than the house you're paying off. And that Bible study group where you sit around and you've been reading about Jesus as the year goes on, in God's eyes, that's far more significant than how your job has progressed throughout the year. 
and your personal Bible reading and prayer life. In God's eyes, that's far more helpful than all the study and personal development courses that you signed up to and went along to. Your children, getting to know about Jesus, far more important than how they went at school. Your striving for obedience to Jesus, far more important than striving to be fit. And don't get me wrong, all those other things might have a place, but certainly not pride of place compared to Jesus. You do see that, don't you? You are going to plan next year with that framework, aren't you? Because our Bible passage this morning, it's not just a list of weird names. It's the world according to God. And according to God, all about Jesus. And you and I would be wise to have a lifestyle that reflects that. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for the coming of your Son, our King and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Jesus all your promises throughout history are fulfilled. Father, thank you that because of Jesus we are actually able to take our place, not that we deserve it, but to take our place in your own special people. And to have the privilege of being ruled over by your extraordinary son and our King Jesus. Father, we pray that in the many things that can distract us and overwhelm us in life, by your word and spirit, you still help us to keep focus on Jesus and to centre and live for him so that you might be honoured and he would have the honour that is due. Amen.